0: writing by inspiration um, of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know from uh, First John that there is no mention of his name uh, in this letter, but it is uh, widely accepted and known that he is the author of it. It was known um, in the early church uh, pretty much without refute that he was the author of it. There are such similarities between uh, the style of writing, the phrases, the words that are used. Between this letter and the uh, the Gospel of John, um, that it gives a lot of evidence to the fact that he was the human instrument, the human writer, and author of the book. Uh, similar to what we've had, kind of as a main theme, in these last oh probably uh, we get into First uh, Second Corinthians, First Second Thessalonians, uh, these writings of Paul. Uh, we just dealt with uh, both of the letters from Peter, uh, and very similar to them. John begins this letter writing to uh, oppose or to caution against, again, false doctrine and false teachers. It's amazing, as you take some time to survey these, all these New Testament letters, how, how much the issue of right doctrine becomes the theme of what is being spoken of here. Unless we think that we're in a unique time period in history where... All of a sudden, doctrine has been thrown under the, under the rug and nobody cares about doctrine anymore. This has been an ongoing battle since the early church, uh, that first century church. It was already becoming a major, major issue to where many, if not most all of the New Testament writers, to some form or another, address the issue of false doctrine and false teachers. Uh, John does so in this letter. It's Again, it's primarily focused on combating it. It's interesting that uh, each of them has a particular direction they approach it. Um, <coughs> uh, in First Peter, we, we found out that <coughs> he was teaching them how to deal with external opposition. They had a lot of persecution, a lot of people outside of the church that were opposing them. And so his first letter was addressing how do you deal with that. The second letter that Peter writes um, was addressing what do you do about false teachers that rise up from within the church. Inside the church. Uh, and then, how do you address them? How do you identify them? How do you see them? What are some of their characteristics? And probably the second letter that Peter wrote, I think, firstly, out of all the books in the New Testament dealing with the issue of false doctrine and, and false teachers, is probably the most comprehensive book uh, dealing with how to, how to identify them, how we're supposed to respond to them, how we're we supposed to deal with them, uh, out of all of them. John comes on the scene here writing a letter also. Probably it doesn't say specifically who he's addressing these two, but they were churches that he was very intimate with. So probably because of the latter part of his ministry being focused primarily in the area of Asia Minor and, and a lot of the churches that uh, Paul had even visited during some of his missionary journeys uh, were probably addressed to the Christians, again, that were scattered abroad, but not necessarily to the ones there in, in Jerusalem. Um, John had... Uh, by this time probably left Jerusalem and was uh, ministering somewhere around probably Ephesus or in that area. And uh, so he writes this letter to those that were dearly beloved by him. And he writes as an elder, um, and it's interesting because the word elder in Scripture uh, can refer to a position. Uh, The term elder, the term bishop, and the term pastor all are dealing with leadership in the church. But it can also just mean, in some cases, and you have to look at the context to know, it can also just mean old age, that he is up in years at this point. And at least a couple of times throughout these next three letters that we're going to look that he's written, uh, the phrase that he uses, the elder, uh, often will refer to uh, the fact that he's just up in years. Uh, not so much that he was a pastor of a church or in, in a leadership of a particular church at that time. Um, he does speak about the fact that he is an eyewitness uh, to the events that he wrote about. So he has claim to apostleship uh, quite a bit. Uh, but he's going to refute uh, the error and the, the doctrine. And uh, very similar to Second Peter, the way that he's going to combat this, and he says that he's going to teach on how to overcome the false doctrine and the false teachers, is by walking in the knowledge of the truth. And over and over again, we're finding in the New Testament that the best way to know and to understand what false doctrine is, the best way to identify false teachers, is to know your doctrine, to walk in the knowledge of the truth, to know this book, uh, inside and out, to study it, to learn it, to handle it well. And I think probably one of the great failures in modern-day Christianity is the lack of emphasis we put on studying so that we can handle the Word of God well and not as novices, not as unskilled in the Word, but uh, to be able to have a good, solid, working knowledge of Scripture. And um, I I was uh, listening to a fellow a number of years ago. He was probably back in the mid-80s, I would say, 1980s, maybe early 90s. And he was talking about youth ministry at that time. And uh, one of the things that he brought about was the fact that uh, we are oftentimes so focused on the externals. Uh, we, we teach young people, we, we, we start Christian schools in our churches, or we have youth programs in our churches. And we, we teach them how to how to look right, how to talk right, uh, how to act right, and we miss the heart of the issue sometimes. And uh, true doctrine is not not doing something that makes us... Uh, appear to be a shell outwardly that's clean, but pure doctrine is something that affects the heart. And if we have right doctrine, the outside will be right. It will start showing on the outside. But it is possible, if we're not careful, to put on um, this outward facade and never deal with the heart of the issue. And the, 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 the thing that we're finding a lot of times, even in our, in our churches that we would look at and say, okay, they're, they're King James Version, They have standards, they're separated, they believe in having a good testimony for the Lord. A lot of times if you'll walk in those churches and you'll sit and listen to the preaching or you'll go through their ministries, you'll find out that a lot of it is trying to form the outside of the shell and whiten the sepulcher, so to speak, and very little dealing with the heart of the issue. And the more I have spent these last several years of my life in studying especially these New Testament books, uh, the emphasis that these writers, these apostles put on sound doctrine is just absolutely over, I mean it's just overabundant. Uh, they cannot seem to emphasize it enough. and uh, so they do that again here. Now John approaches it from a little bit of a different standpoint. Uh, John approaches it from the sake of uh, the doctrine that was being taught, the, the false teaching, the false doctrine, how it would affect the lives, of the believers, and in affecting their lives, how they lived, uh, it affected their fellowship with God. And so this first letter is dealing with uh, two sections, primarily that it's broken into, the basis of our fellowship with God, and he established it, establishes it being in agreement with and following after pure doctrine, the, the basis of our fellowship. And then secondly, the second half of the book deals with... Uh, the characteristics. What what is what is right fellowship with God look like? What should it what should it follow after? What's the what's the behavior that we should have in a right fellowship with the Lord? <clears throat> so, he's going to break the the letter into two sections. He's going to lay a foundation on the importance of having a right fellowship with the Lord and uh, how important that is. So. Uh, in chapter 1, verse number 1 through chapter 2, verse number 27, he's going to deal with the uh, first section. And then from chapter 2, verse 28 through the end of the book, and from chapter 5, verse 21, he'll deal with the characteristics of fellowship. Let's look in chapter 1, if you will. And uh, we're going to look at several verses, so keep your Bibles handy. And uh, let's look in verse number 5, chapter 1, in verse number 5. We're going to begin there. And he's going to start by laying a foundation of our fellowship with God. And he says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so he begins with the righteousness, the holiness of God. And then he starts in with this uh, verse number 6. If we say, so he shifts the focus from God's holiness to now what, what does this do for us? If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we what does the next word say? We lie and do not the truth. Uh, there, there are a couple of things that I believe that John hits right off the bat. I mean, just nails the nails the, the nail right on top of the head. That the basis of our fellowship is first of all that we know Him. You cannot fellowship with God if you don't know Him. But beyond knowing Him, we need to also understand this, uh, that we are strengthened by God to live in such a way that we keep fellowship open. And He says, it says in verse 6 that there is something that hinders this fellowship. And that is walking in darkness now we're not talking here about salvation we're going to read some verses here that if you feel like he's talking about salvation you're going to end up in a works of salvation all right he's not dealing with salvation he is dealing here with our fellowship with God our walk with God now that we are saved and uh, so let's look down verse number seven he says this but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship now, Fellowship is interesting because there is a, a, a twofold fold uh, response to the fellowship. First of all, our fellowship with God will be right, and that is a human and a divine fellowship. But notice in verse 7, it also tells us that if that relationship is right, this fellowship is right, we're walking in the light, that we also have fellowship one with another. Uh, the The Bible speaks quite clearly, and Paul addressed often the issue of strife or contention among believers. And every time it had its root in pride, every time it had its root in worldliness, and he says, only by pride cometh contention, and deals with those that walk after the pride of life and the lust of the flesh and after the things of the flesh, and how that that brings contention. But when we walk in the light as He is in the light, John says this, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. So he he lays a a foundation for fellowship. And the foundation of fellowship is starting to to be drawn out here pretty clearly by John, and that is this, that if we're walking in darkness, it breaks our fellowship. Corrupts it. If we're walking in light, it strengthens our fellowship and allows us not only to be right with God, but to be right with one another. And you can rest assured, whenever there starts to become strife or contention among believers, uh, there is there's something amiss. Uh, something's not, not kosher there. Something's not right. It certainly is not of the Lord. And Satan loves nothing more, and we're going to see some things here in just a little bit, how that there are Christians, those that believe, that will follow after uh, some things that do not reflect God. They reflect Satan. If we're not careful, we'll do that. We will give, uh, we will give uh, an indication of the works of the flesh. We'll give an indication of the things that Satan does in believers. Now, verse number chapter 1 and verse number 8, I'm going to read it to you. It's an important verse because we're going to come back to it here, Lord willing, in a few minutes when we get to chapter 3. There's another verse there, and if you're not careful, you'll read the two verses, and you'll say, oh, they're, they're saying opposite of each other. They're contradicting each other. They are not contradicting each other. But I want you to keep in very close mind verse number 8. The Bible says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, that is a factual statement. Even though we get saved and we trust Christ as our Savior, the old nature is still there. And we, are not, we don't believe uh, that we have sinless perfection and won't have it until we get to heaven. Um, but we ought to be striving to have a righteous and a holy life. Not because we have to keep ourselves saved, but because we want this fellowship that John speaks of. We want to be able to not only fellowship one with another, we want to be able to fellowship with the Lord. And so he tells us this in verse 9, if we confess our sin, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. And so, we oftentimes will quote this verse, and I've done it before, I'm sure I've heard other people do it before. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oftentimes, we'll say that to a lost person. And we'll use it trying to get somebody to come to a place where they trust Christ as their Savior. But it is not written to the lost. It's written to the saved. It's written not in regards to salvation, but in the, uh, regards to fellowship. Uh, I've used this illustration many, many times. When I was a kid, uh, my mom and dad were, were rather stringent, old-fashioned disciplinarians. Uh, many of you I've talked to, and you had parents similar to mine. And you know, we, got, uh, we got whoopings, and we got whippins, and there was a difference between the two. And uh, I remember as a kid, uh, being hyperactive, and as much as I did not want to get in trouble, uh, I remember one summer, it just—it probably wasn't this, but in my memory it seems like I got a spanking every single day. And I'd I'd promise myself the next day, I'm not getting in trouble, I'm not getting in trouble. And um, occasionally I'd do something like that, and not occasionally, more often than occasionally, (laughs) I would do something like that as a young person, and mom would say, Greg, go to your room, and your dad's going to deal with it when he gets home. Now, there was there was mixed emotions about that. Uh, because, on one hand, I didn't want to sit and agonize, dreading my dad coming home. But on the other hand, dad had better aim than mom had, and I'd rather dad whip me than mom whip me sometimes. <laughs> but uh, I, I remember sitting there in that room, and I loved my dad. Uh, one of the great... Honors of my life was to labor in ministry with him for 12 years before he passed. I loved it. I loved working with my dad. I loved uh, being alongside of him. And uh, even as a young kid, I wanted—if my dad went somewhere, I wanted to be with him. I wanted to go with him. And I remember those days when Mom would say, "Son, Greg, go to your room, and Dad'll deal with it when you get home." It was during those times that I, I, when I heard Dad pull in the driveway, I was as quiet as a church mouse in my room. I didn't want Dad to know I was even home. I didn't want him to come in that door. I didn't want him to see me. I wanted to just I, everything I could to blend into the walls of the house and not even be seen, because I didn't want to see my dad. Because I knew that I had done some things to break fellowship with him. I had done things that He had told me not to do. And I knew that chastening was coming. I knew that punishment was coming. I'm very thankful and grateful for the parents I had. I don't remember, if there was a time, I don't remember it. I don't ever remember a time that my dad got done with the belt. That once it was over, he took me in his arms or held me. And said, Now, son, I love you. And all of a sudden, even though the chastening was not pleasant, the fellowship was restored. And I often think how often we do things contrary to God's Word. And as God's people, we break that fellowship. And there needs to be often, I think, moments of our lives where we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I've messed up here. I need to get this right. I'm sorry for doing it. With your help and with your strength, I'll make every effort not to do it again. And you know what John writes here is that God is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just the first time we do it. Not just the second time we do it. And God is not one of these three-strikes-you're-out kind of people. He does it every single time. What a God that we have. And he speaks of this fellowship. And there was was folks that were trying to draw away the hearts of believers and get them into doctrinal error and pull them away from God's Word. And these folks were, were breaking their fellowship with the Lord and living carnally and living in sin. And so he cautions them in chapter number 2. And uh, we get down and around verse number... Uh, let's go... verse number. We'll just start in verse 1. We'll read through most of chapter 2 because it's chapter 2 is a pretty important chapter in this one. John writes it this way. He says, My little children... And again, you kind of have a picture. John is getting up in years. Uh, he's got young Believers, these folks that that have not been saved very long. And he's got a term of endearment here. He expresses his love for them, his concern for them in this expression, my little children. These things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And so he gives them a caution here uh, and gives a practical sense of, of keeping fellowship with God. And then he gives a doctrinal sense of keeping fellowship with God. He's going to deal with it a little bit further. Uh, and when we get down around verse number 14 or so, chapter 2, we're going to look at it a little more clearly there. But you'll find that he starts off with talking about the fact that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And the idea that we're to keep ourselves from sin, we're to we're to uh, not uh, to, to do everything we can to strive not to sin, and to, and to have a heart not to sin, and that's the practical side of it. But then he also speaks of the doctrinal side of it, uh, that even if we get uh, in our sin, we have an advocate with the Father, that God... Uh, is there, the Lord Jesus Christ is there to be a propitiation for our sins. And he says hereby, in verse number 3, we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Now, I wrote down uh, a statement here. Let's see if I've got it in in my notes so I can read it the way I wrote it here. Uh, And that is that, let's see here. I'm going to give it to you the way I remember right? Uh, thinking of it when I was studying this, because uh, I can't find the actual notes later. It's probably later in my notes, and we'll come to it again. But this is an interesting thing that we find, that our practice of living right and living holy should always be tied to and intimately involved with our profession of our salvation. This is one of the telltale signs that people know that we know Him. Our relationship, our fellowship with Him is directly tied to our actions and our obedience to His commandments. Um, You cannot say, I love God and I have a close relationship with Him and then disobey Him. The, the, the two statements are, are completely opposed one to the other. Uh, you, you cannot say that God is preeminent in my life and then live intentionally and without conscience in sin because they are opposed the one to the other. If we're to have fellowship, if we're to love one another, the way that we have fellowship is by obedience. Obedience. It ought to stem from our love for Him because of what He's done for us. And so we find kind of a hierarchy. We find that here we are, sinful man, with no ability to save ourselves, and God, because of His great love wherewith He loved us, dies on the cross and pays for our sin. We, in turn, have to put our faith in what He's done for, him, for us so that we can take advantage of that payment for our sin. The penalty of our sin can be completely taken away if we put our faith in His shed blood on Calvary. And when we notice and realize what He has done for us and the love that He's had for us, the Bible says we love Him because He what? First, loved us. The greatest commandment Jesus said when He was asked is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. In fact, in Matthew, I believe it is, there's a statement that is made that a man needs to, and the statement is used is that that he ought to love Christ and he ought to hate his father and his mother and his sister and brother and the I can't I can't quote it exact, but it's got that connotation. And the idea is not that we hate our mother and our father and our brother and our sister. It's saying that the love that we have for them pales in such way a way for our love for the Lord that our love for them seems like it's hatred because we love God that much more. And so because of what Christ has done for us, we ought to love Him. And the love is the motivation for obedience. And obedience is a requirement for fellowship. It must happen. It must happen. I would love to say that all of my obedience is because I love Him. But the truth of the matter is, not all of it is. Some of it is just, even though I don't, it's not because uh, I, I, I don't want to do it. I, I just do it because I know I should. And the Bible tells me I should. And if you can't do it for any other reason, do it for that reason. But oh, how wonderful it is when we get to a place where we love God so much that our desire is to obey Him. I, I remember a moment in my life years ago where my obedience to my mom and dad was first out of fear. If I didn't do it, they were going to get me. But eventually, it got to a place where I wanted to. I loved them so much. I did not want to disappoint them. I did not want to break that fellowship with my parents. I wanted to do it. And it, and they had to start being careful about what they asked me to do. Because, I mean, I'd do it... If I even knew they wanted something, I'd do it, even if they hadn't asked me to yet. Can I tell you, that's the kind of spirit we ought to have towards the things of the Lord. Because our obedience will determine our fellowship with Him. And our obedience ought to be out of our love. Now notice what he says here in verse number uh, verse number uh, 4. He says, He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoso keepeth His word in Him verily is the, here it is, love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in Him. He that saith he abideth in him... And if you're in the habit of underlining things, you ought to underline this word abideth because it's going to be crucial here in a few minutes to understand something that if you don't look at it in the right way, you'll say, boy, that's, that's, you'll, you'll come up with the wrong doctrine on it. Alright? Uh, the idea of abiding is, is critical here. Verse number 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. In other words, if you say you abide in Christ then your walk ought to match His walk. You ought to live godly. There ought to be a Christ-likeness in you. Now, that's if you're abiding in Him. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment that ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth, he that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth there's that word again in the light. And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Now we're going to deal with some verses here that if you're not careful, you're going to look at and you're going to say, Well, John is talking here that we're supposed to we're supposed to be sinlessly perfect we are never to sin. Well, that's God's desire, obviously. But he's going to make some pretty strong statements here, and all of it hinges on the idea of whether we are abiding in Christ or not. Whether we are abiding in Him or not. Uh, He says this, "...but he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because..." "...that darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning." I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. And so he's saying here, guys, you guys know this stuff. You've been taught it. You've known it in the past. It's been an old commandment. It's a new commandment. All of it is being said for your benefit and for your profit. And he goes to this point in verse number 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby ye know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have, and here's an interesting word, an unction from the Holy One. And ye know all things." I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it. And that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is an antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you. Here's that word abide again. Which ye have heard from the beginning... If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. So these false teachers, these antichrists is what John calls them, are trying to seduce them away from the truth of abiding in Christ. John tells them, he says, You have an unction of the Holy uh, from the Holy One. John's going to deal with two issues. He's going to deal first with the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, the fact that God indwells a believer. But he's also going to speak of this unction, and later on he's going to be talking about the fact that this Holy Spirit uh gives us a, the um, the validation that when we read truth It is truth. He confirms it in our hearts. He does that by this unction. He does that by this, some people would call it an anointing of the Holy Spirit or a working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts where the Holy Spirit, when we read something in Scripture, will say, that's true, that's right, you need to know this to be true. And so He's going to be dealing with this. He says uh, in verse number 27, But the anointing which ye have received of Him... Here it is, again, that word, abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things in his truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. So so get the idea here. John, I'm trying to, to say it in the, the clearest way I can, John speaks of the fact that when We get saved, God comes to indwell us, and He does that through His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us an unction, here He uses the word a little bit later, an anointing that is a work that the Holy Spirit does in us. To verify, to uh, give authentication to the truth that we read from Scriptures. Now, it does not, and make sure you understand this, mean that that Holy Spirit gives us new extra-biblical revelation. What it means is, He gives us the power, He puts this unction or this anointing on us, to have absolute confidence in the truth of revealed Scripture. That when we read it, we say, that's true. How do you know it's true? Because I read it, and the Holy Spirit confirmed into my heart, that's true. He he has that ability to do this. And He does so, according to verse number 27, that He teaches us of all things and is true and is no lie. Even as it has been taught you, you shall abide in Him. So it's the Holy Spirit that when we read Scripture, when we tell somebody else about Scripture or give the Gospel to them, it's the Holy Spirit that confirms in their heart that those words are true. That those words are right. Uh, I've had people say, uh, you know, I never doubted the Bible. Since I was a kid, I've always just known that the Bible was true. Well, what, what put that in your heart? How did you know that? Or somebody would say, you know, I heard the Bible for the very first time, and the first time I ever heard it, I knew it was true. How did you know it? The Holy Spirit has a way of confirming that in our hearts. And so John speaks of this. This is kind of the foundation uh, of of being established in truth and not wavering, not not falling by the wayside, not deviating. He goes on in chapter 3, and here's where we're going to get into uh, the verse, chapter 1, verse number 8, that we need to go back and look at here in just a moment. We'll see it here in chapter 3. Because now he's going to start dealing with, having laid a foundation of the fact that God has not only indwelt us and has given us His Holy Spirit to teach us in all truth to keep us secure in doctrine. That these things are crucial to our, our relationship with God, our fellowship with God. Now he's going to start dealing with what are some of these characteristics. And he's going to start seeing some of that in verse chapter number 3. He says, uh, Behold, uh, let's go to verse number 29 of chapter 2. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of Him. So again, the... Idea of living above sin to strive for holiness, to strive for righteousness is a crucial, crucial element to our relationship and our fellowship with Him. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So one of the characteristics of fellowship is a continuous and a growing desire to be pure. To be right. Why? Because even though we're not what we should be, we know that one day we are going to be like you. And John speaks of the fact here that every man that hath this hope purifieth himself. And he's trying to, to strive for this fellowship, if you will, with God that is unbroken, that is un, unmasked by the sin in the spots of the world. Verse number 4, "...whoso committeth sin transgresseth also the law." For sin is the transgression of the law. That is a great definition of sin. If you've never defined sin, let the Bible do it for you. Underline that verse. That is probably the greatest definition of sin there is. Sin is the transgression of the law. Meaning then, that in order not to sin, we cannot transgress the law. We've got to, let's use this phrase, keep the law in order not to sin. Verse number 5, "...and ye know that He was manifested to take away your sins, and in Him is no sin. Whosoever abideth..." Here's that word again. Notice this phrase. "...whosoever abideth in Him, sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen Him, neither known Him." Now, chapter 3, verse number 6, if you're not careful, you'll look at chapter 1 and verse number 8 and say, how do I reconcile the two? I mean, chapter 1, verse number 8 says, if I if I say I have no sin, I, I'm a liar. I, I'm, I'm not telling the truth about that. And then we get to chapter 3, verse number 6. It says, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Are we talking about sinless perfection? No. What John is trying to draw here is the, the concept or the idea of this this, this fellowship, this abiding in Christ, that when we are the closest to the Lord, when, when there is uh, there is no hindrance between my soul and the Savior, Whenever, when, the, when the record is clean, when, the, when I have confessed my sin to Him and said, Lord, uh, I need to restore this fellowship again, it's not because I've lost my salvation, it's just I want to restore a sweet communion with You. I want to obey Your commandments because I love You and I long to have this sweet fellowship with you, that as long as I am abiding in Him, I don't sin. But we know that we can't abide in Him all the time because the old nature causes us to draw from that abiding in Him. Both statements are true. Chapter 1 and verse number 8, there is no conflict here. A man that says he has no sin is lying. The truth is not in him. He's, he's, he's telling you a lie. Chapter three, verse six is also true: that whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. That it is only as we are abiding in him that we are able to overcome sin in our lives. This is a vital truth for us to understand. So it, it kind of gives us and gives us the importance of. Does it really matter what my fellowship and relationship with God is day in and day out? Should I even really worry about it? Well, absolutely. Why? Because it will help keep us from sin. We'll never be absolutely perfect this side of heaven. But the more that we can abide in Him, give our will over to Him completely, the less we will sin. And it ought to be a continuous and a progressive work of the Holy Spirit in our lives day in and day out. He says in verse six, Whoso abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the what's the next word here? Devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So understand that the work that God does by indwelling and in doing us and giving us an unction of the Holy Spirit is a work that is trying to give us more and more victory in our daily life over sin. That there is a diametrically opposed battle going on in our will every day. And as I abide in Christ, I don't sin. But as I sin, I follow the devil. And this is what John is saying. He says, he that committeth sin is of the devil. As a Christian, as a believer, as someone who has trusted Christ as our Savior, our desire should be to reflect the image of Christ to the world. That our life be such that it comes... Through us, and people see Christ through us. Matthew chapter 5 speaks of this. When we sin, and we will, we do not reflect Christ. I know you say, well, Pastor, that's an overly simple statement. Obviously not. But are we cognizant of this fact? Do we understand this? Does sin bother us the way that it should? Every time I sin, I am not a reflection of Christ. I am a reflection of my father, the devil, the old flesh nature. I am promoting the cause of Satan when I sin, not the cause of Christ. And John's John's trying to get these believers to understand the importance of this. Because there are seducers, there are antichrists out here trying to get them to just live the way they want to live. He says there is an importance here that is placed on living rightly. Rightly. Living pure, living uh, above sin, abiding in Christ. And so he tells them uh, in verse number 9, us back in verse number 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. That is a true statement. The, the part of us that was made alive and born fresh and new when we trusted Christ as our Savior is the part of us that does not want to sin. And it does not, it's not the part of our will that leads us into sin. It is the old flesh nature that sins. It's the old flesh that keeps drawing us away. And, and John is trying to show that the, the battle that takes place in the will. That we must battle and fight every single day. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness, is not of God. Neither he that loveth, uh, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that he heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he gives two examples here. He gives an example of Cain as an illustration of one who did not love his brother. Even if he said he's my brother, I love him. At some point, it was a feigned love at best. And then he uses, as you get into chapter number four, the illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ and his selfless, self sacrificing love for others, and how that this ought to be the love that we have—not only for Christ, but also for the Lord, uh, for one another—that we are willing to lay aside our will, that we are willing to give it all. Because we love Him. We'll pick up there next week. We didn't make it about halfway through our notes. But very important for us to understand that John is putting a huge, huge emphasis here on the fact that we love Christ. Out of that love, we are obedient to Christ because our obedience is what affects our fellowship with Christ. And it is very important that we understand and learn these truths from John. So we'll pick up there next Sunday, and uh, we'll be ready to have our next service here in about ten minutes. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we do ask that you would bless the teaching of your word, and may you use it today to be a help to us. And, Father, I pray that you'll bless those that are yet traveling and on their way here, give them safety. As they